Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Duvid Media. This is Finding Quantum Quest. I'm Spencer Worth Davis. In talking to Harry, Dan, Stephen Van Buren, everybody we talked to so far, I kept thinking about just how how many both intentional and unintentional, I guess, consequences, for lack of a better word, there was there were of Cassini. Mm. So it's like, the butterfly flapping its wings thing. Yeah, yeah basically, but like, well, and, and in both directions, almost like how how many things had to happen to get to that point? Like we have to invent flight. Someone has to invent solid and liquid rocketry. We have to be able to build robots and sensors and cameras and things that work in the void of space. We have to figure out how to navigate to Saturn, you all discover that stuff. Saturn. Right. And f- find out what its rings are. The whole of. history of astronomy has to happen. Right. <laughs> and then from that point where we launch this probe out to Saturn, so many things change for so many people, right? Everyone that worked on, on Cassini Huygens, obviously their lives are very different, but you know, Dan St. Pierre animates a whole movie about it. Harry Kluwer writes a whole movie about it. They go to Taiwan, a a whole Taiwanese animation industry maybe hinges on this thing, Mm -hmm. right? There's a whole parallel film project happening over here with Stephen Van Buren and in Saturn's rings, we're making a podcast about it 20 years later. Mm -hmm. Like there's this whole sort of, I guess, butterfly effect that happened because of this sort of one moment. And specifically within the Cassini project, the imaging team of that project really Mm -hmm. set all of this stuff into motion. Mm -hmm. So we tracked down Carolyn Porco, who was the imaging lead on, Cassini and was ultimately responsible for taking those 400,000 images. Shout out. Shout out. Yeah. Porco. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play her giving her own intro because it's much more thorough than I could do. I was, even as a child, very interested in the natural world and the way things worked. I gravitated in school towards the sciences. I loved, loved going to school. Really, I loved learning, and that drove me to uh, concentrate on science when I was in high school. And by the time I got to be a young teenager, I was in the middle of 
an existential crisis. I was somewhat depressed. In fact, I feel like I've gotten happier with age. As a 13-year-old, I was just deep in these very philosophical questions like, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of my life? What am I doing here? And I took that and it became, it started as a religious quest. I started on my own. This was out of school. I read about other religions, Hinduism, Buddhism. I tried for a period of about four months to really be a very devout Catholic, which is the the religion I was born into. And none of that worked for me. I just couldn't find the answer to my question there. I even read existentialism, you know, some of those guys, and boy, that was uh, that was a bummer, and I couldn't find the answer there either. And so I couldn't get anywhere with it. And so my my questions actually morphed from, you know, what is the meaning of my life, and what am I doing here, to, well, where is here? This perspective shift ultimately guided Carolyn towards space science. She studied physics and astronomy in college, then attended grad school at Caltech, which houses JPL. After graduation, she began working at JPL on the Voyager program. Voyager 1 and 2 were robotic probes launched by NASA and JPL in 1977. They performed flybys of multiple planets before exiting the solar system in 2012. Voyager 1 is still in operation today, more than 14 billion miles from Earth. Because of my schooling at Caltech, I was present in graduate school when Voyager passed Saturn, uh, and I got involved in the Voyager project by working on the data and doing my thesis on Voyager results, and that put me in an excellent position to be added to the Voyager imaging team officially after I graduated, which the imaging team leader, Brad Smith, did. And I mean, the rest is kind of history. I participated in the flybys of Uranus and Neptune. I was part of the planning of them. And by the time we got to Neptune with Voyager, I was leading the small band of people on the imaging team who were interested in planetary rings. And all that put me in a great position to be selected only a year later, year and a half later, after Voyager was over, to be selected to be the team leader on the next mission out to Saturn, and that was Cassini. So that's kind of the trajectory of my career. It's amazing, you know? I could never, ever, ever have predicted that that's what I ended up doing. But, you know, it just goes to show you never know. You just never know. In addition to her career at NASA, Carolyn has also taught at the University of Arizona and University of Colorado, and worked in media as a character consultant on Contact with her friend Carl Sagan and as an advisor on 2009's Star Trek movie. It's really cool to hear, just backtracking a second, to hear her, Can I feel like you often hear, there's sort of a trope that's like, science helps us, you know, try to address the really big questions in life. But some, it's never, they don't always like connect those dots between like, and therefore we study the cell right. makeup or whatever. But it's cool to hear her say, and I chased that rabbit down spiritual holes, down the Dostoevsky hole, and then came to a new question instead of why are we here to where is here? Yeah. I've never really thought about that question before. 
yeah. where is here, you know? Right. That, and that's, that's a direct connection to why someone would want to go now study astronomy and, and physics and stuff. Buckle up, buddy, because she's full of it. Hell yeah. <laughs> Somewhere between Voyager in the late 1970s and Cassini in the late 1990s, there seemed to be an increased investment in imaging on planetary missions. The two Voyager missions took about 33,000 total images of Jupiter, compared to the 400,000 images Cassini took of Saturn. I asked Carolyn about what changed between those two missions. I wouldn't say that because we have 400,000 images taken by Cassini that that means imaging was prioritized over the other experiments. It's that Cassini was there for 13 years. So all the, the uh, instruments took a lot of data. It wasn't prioritized in that sense. But the shift was in the way that images were used to convey what was going on in the mission. And let me explain this, because several things contributed to that shift. In Voyager days, this was the 1980s, first of all, there was no internet to speak of. And image processing was done for press conferences. It was really for mostly for illustrative purposes to provide graphics during presentations at press conferences, which in those days was a very big deal. Uh, I should explain this too. Voyager was conducted so much more differently than any missions done today. At every flyby, the press were invited to JPL for a period of about a week or 10 days around the flyby. And they were physically present there. And the teams were all headquartered for that week or 10 days or two weeks, whatever it was, at JPL also. So the purpose of all of us being there was so that when we got data back, we could look at it quickly. We could say, oh, here is a great thing. We've just discovered this thing on this moon. We should talk about it. Everyone will be interested in that. We're seeing a new moon. We're seeing this and that. And we have to present this to the public, and to the press. So the, the emphasis of these press conferences was all that, just that presentation of our results, to immediate results to the public. There was no digital public release. There was no attempt at accurate reproduction in color or, or even you know much realism. It was all quick and dirty, get it out. Along with that, afterwards, individual scientists might process their images for their publications, you know, again, to illustrate some scientific thing that they had found. There wasn't this idea in those days to keep the public interest high by, by releasing images. The second thing that happened was the development of the internet between Voyager and Cassini, which made it possible to quickly release images to the world. And the third you mentioned, I really brought an entirely different approach to this whole thing. I had in mind that if I, even before I became imaging team leader, that if I got chosen, I would put major effort into making the images as true to life as possible, and that included color, uh, and that I would release them on a regular schedule. I had this firmly in my mind, and I remember at our first imaging team meeting, and that was December 1990 at JPL, that was a long time ago, I announced my vision to the team that we would go after not only beautiful images, but also turning to the degree that we could, 
turning our cameras into video recorders and taking moving sequences of everything that moved. So the answer is the internet. I guess I kind of forgot about that for a minute. But Carolyn had a vision for the imaging team as well. She wanted to create beautiful, high-quality, full-color images and release them regularly to the public. Why, why was that so important to you right at the start that you wanted to prioritize imaging and, and distributing them publicly? To me, it was a way of luring in the public with, you know, the, the beauty and the realism of these images. You know, you're all about art and, and media, right? Well, this was me trying to use the artful presentation of the images, which, look, gets to me too. I'm a scientist, but, you know, when I first look at an, an image, the first thing that strikes me is how spectacular it is or how beautiful it is. So I knew the effect it had on me, and I wanted, of course, to present them realistically. It was all motivated really by my vision that our job on the imaging team was to be the documentarians of our travels around Saturn and to return a visual record of what we saw there. You know, we, we were the scientists, but we're also, you know, like the ships of old, which went to South America, you know, Darwin's Beagle and so on. They're recording, they're taking, they didn't have cameras, they're, you know, making drawings. That's how I saw us. And so that idea, that vision, of course, was all in order to give all those who were watching us a feeling of being there along for the ride. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. In spite of all the planning and calculation and design and everything that goes into these missions, or because maybe because of it, it's, it's easy to lose sight of like, oh, this is this is really purely exploration to some degree. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't know what they were going to find out there. Yeah, and it is the equivalent of discovering a new continent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Except that in this case, like, literally no people have been there before. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's such a tangible, like, expansion of human knowledge. So they say. I mean, oh, God. <laughs> you just so rarely get something that clean where it's like, no one knew this was here at all. Yeah. And now we do. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, some incremental bits, to, but like. It's adding pages. Yeah. To an to like encyclopedia. Right. The book of human knowledge and right. all that we know. It, it's. Yeah, and of course you want to document that. Like that seems obvious when mm-hmm. she says it, but it it also hadn't really been done before. Mm-hmm. Like we took pictures, but not like not like that. Right. And and I guess some of it was maybe like the depth of knowledge that we could get about individual places. Like we had we had flown past Saturn before. We hadn't spent years orbiting Saturn, taking images every few seconds. Right. And what is there to gain with that? Just like that one more layer of depth with some of that stuff. When did they discover the new moons of Saturn? I don't remember the year, but 
When did, when did Cassini launch? In the 97. 97. Yeah. So, wow, that's that's like kind of freaky, actually. And it didn't get there until like, oh, three <laughs> or something four. There's something kind of unsettling about that. How much we don't know still? It's like, yeah, it's Saturn, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, I know that's far away, but you know, it's not like... Well, and that, I guess that's sort of my yeah. point is like we, I think I take for granted that we know what's out there and understand a lot of it. And yeah, it was on the wall in my elementary school classroom. Minus a few moons, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, we don't know what we don't know until we go do it and figure out what's there and what we had missed previously. Yeah. Right. So it makes total sense that you would then all, if you're doing that and that's really what the essence of the mission is of like, of course you want to document that. Right. Porco's plan wasn't executed exactly as she had envisioned, though. She expected to have a nine-month window after receiving images back from Cassini to process them and analyze the data before they were released to the public. Instead, these images were released to the public at the same time the imaging team was receiving them. My plan was that our processed images uh, in the way that I intended to do it would be this irresistible lure for the public and that they would come to appreciate the beauty and the realism of them and feel that they were there riding along with us around Saturn. What happened was that, and this took me completely by surprise, some amateurs were taking our raw images and processing them themselves. And this made me very nervous in the beginning because I thought we'd get scooped by other scientists, but I ended up being tremendously worried that because of this, the amateurs getting involved and making their own products, that the media outlets would grab the amateur products first. And that would mean, and write stories about it, and then that they would ignore our process images and the press releases that went along with it, which because of the very lengthy NASA approval and release process, would co- our stuff would come out way after the amateur product. And it took a couple of years of me watching how things unfolded to realize that my concerns were not, were really for nothing. The media, thank God, the media always waited to see what we experts had to say. I don't know if that they thought that was the wise thing to do or they were just being gracious, but I was just very grateful for that. So in the end, this amateur processing thing has actually been great to see. It's it's nice to see what they've done with our images and how how involved they've been. Um, they've been some of our greatest fans uh, and how much joy they've gotten out of it. So that really ended up being good, but it started out very tense. Uh, I was really, like I said, very nervous about it. I thought not only are we going to get scooped by our colleagues, but now we're going to get scooped in terms of our presentation to the, to the world. They're not even going to pay attention to us. Well, thank God that didn't happen. Carolyn's been involved with taking two of the most famous images of Earth. The first, known as the pale blue dot photo in 1990, and the second, known as the day the Earth smiled, taken about 20 years later. If you're not familiar with these two photos, you should pause the podcast right now and go Google them. They're both strikingly beautiful photos of the Earth taken from far, far away in outer space. The pale blue dot was taken in 1990 by the Voyager 1 space probe, and the day the Earth smiled is essentially a recreation of that photo taken by Cassini in 2013. You know, the day the Earth smiled really begins with the pale blue dot, the original one, which was a very historically important image 
but it wasn't the best image. It turned out somewhat ratty. There were streaks of light that were basically produced by the, there was scattered light in the optics of the camera. So uh, I was involved in the taking of that image. In fact, I had actually thought of it myself before I found years after being rejected by the Voyager project and they wouldn't, they didn't, weren't interested in it. I found that Sagan, Paul Sagan had also been, and still at the time I found out was trying to get it done, but he also couldn't convince the Voyager project to get it done. So I ended up joining his band of collaborators uh, and helping out. He asked me uh, if I would calculate the exposure time. So that's what I did. I ended up joining his his project to take the pale blue dot. So given my involvement with the Voyager experience in imaging Earth from the outer solar system, it really was not a big stretch that I wanted to do it over again, only make it a beautiful image, as I said I was compelled to do with all our images. And I had intended from the beginning to try to make it the beautiful image that we all hoped the original pale blue dot would be, but it didn't turn out that way. Because of the incredible demands that Cassini put on me and others, uh, and the complexities of the observation sequencing process, the opportunity to do that over again didn't arise until we were two-thirds of the way through the, through the mission. And it was going to be this giant mosaic of about 47 footprints and over 100 images, I think about 140. And it took a lot of effort. Uh, and while I was planning the sequence and working on it with my staff members at, in our you know, central facility, it occurred to me that instead of just taking this image of Earth and doing what we did on Voyager and every mission since, that has taken an image of Earth has done, instead of taking the image and then a week or two later, announcing to the world, hey world, guess what we did while you weren't looking? Isn't this cool, this picture of Earth from Mars or this picture of Earth from the Galileo spacecraft on its way to Jupiter or whatever on Cassini? Why don't we tell the people of the world ahead of time that their picture is going to be taken and turn this into like a big gigantic cosmic event and tell them to go out when the image-taking window opens and think about what's happening and appreciate the rarity that our planet is among the other planets that orbit the sun and think about its life-giving beauty. Think about your own existence uh, and just smile at, at the sheer thought of being alive on a pale blue dot. So we did just that on Cassini. We took the image. It turned out to be a great, successful event. People the world over participated and wrote in to tell us how much it meant to them, how connected they felt at the moment it happened, to know there was a camera a billion miles away taking their picture at that very moment. It had just the effect I had hoped. So it's another one of those things I just feel so lucky I got the opportunity to do, and I'm just very proud we pulled it off. That's incredible. Yeah. The fact that like a, you know, a piece of metal with a, with a camera, you know, thousands of miles away can provide, you know, thousands of people with this sort of like unifying moment. It's like really stunning, especially since we don't, or I shouldn't say we, many people don't normally think of things like 
deep space probes as being like an emotionally significant thing for humankind or like a spiritual thing. Right. You know, there's some sort of like utilitarian use of like space technology that it's like, it's going to help us make better air conditioners or something. Right. Not like it's going to provide you an experience with like a global neighbor somehow, you know, that makes you feel more connected. That's really stunning. Images like the pale blue dot and the day the earth smiled impact us in a lot of ways. They can fill us with awe and wonder, make us ponder our place in the vast universe, inspire us to create or to learn. They might even influence the next generation of astronauts and space scientists. But Carolyn reminded us that using romantic, beautiful imagery to inspire and influence is not a new technique. I liken what we did to the works of Albert Bierstadt, who was, I'd say, others say too, the foremost painter of a small group of artists in the 19th century called the Hudson River School. And, And Bierstadt was a landscape painter who created these incredible, spectacular, incredibly romanticized paintings of the American West, of the Rocky Mountains, of Yosemite, with rugged snow-capped peaks jutting into misty clouds with a lovely pastoral scene below of redwood trees and a lake uh, with glinting sunlight and lovely deer drinking from it. Uh, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but they're just absolutely, they're spectacular and they really, boy, they really grab you because you just want to go there. And they were they were painted deliberately, as I understand it, to increase interest in the West and to lure Easterners to travel there to support a growing tourist industry, in fact, and also to support the nation's expansionist goals, to get people, I think, to, to go homestead in the West. She went on to draw a parallel between the work of the Hudson River School and Elon Musk's promises of terraforming and colonizing Mars. The same way the Hudson River School painters romanticized and beautified the Western United States in hopes of accelerating westward expansion, Musk is now romanticizing Mars in hopes of accelerating the commercialization of space. But Carolyn's not sure it's even possible. Well, I'll say that now that we've gotten a chance, I've gotten a chance to see how it's all playing out. I'm not a fan. I'm very disappointed. Already the hyperbole and the overreach and the marketing that we're hearing is outlandish. And it's using our present state of an overpopulated earth and an environment that's headed for ruination as justifications for moving new civilization off the earth. Must decide how Humans are going to go colonize Mars, where by colonization, at least this is what I mean, people actually having a Martian address, living there and giving birth to another generation that, you know, is born on Mars and that continues out infinitum. He's he's describing how we're going to do this and he wants to terraform Mars. He wants to turn its certain environment Earth-like to make to make that happen. Well, it's a fantasy. He doesn't realize that it's it's impossible seen one way uh, and seen another. It's just incredibly infeasible. So, I you know, to me, space travel and and Bezos is also talking unrealistic things like building giant space colonies in orbit around the Earth. 
and they also have to be terraformed and uh, you know they're just they're great science fiction uh the products of science fiction and we all love science fiction i'm an original star platform this is our mythology and we all love it but you know when push comes to shove you have to get realistic and what they're saying now is is just they're misleading people and i i don't think that's useful space travel to me is justified by scientific exploration and the creation of new knowledge, not the exploitation of of space, which is all concerned with profit-making, and it will go the same way it's gone down here on Earth. Profits will always come first, and all else takes place, and we'll end up in the same place that we are here on Earth. It's just not the way to go about it. So much of these this push to like commercialize space, especially from goons like Bezos and and Musk, is like Get it just seems like a cope where it's like let us continue to concentrate capital in the ways that we have because it doesn't matter what happens to the planet. Like we're gonna be able to just ditch this scene and start somewhere else. And even if they don't believe that it's true, which they probably don't even believe that that's gonna happen, it's just a it's a way of like of like forming this imaginary escape, this imaginary like pressure release valve that we can flip once we like, you know, discover the right technology that makes everything we do now not matter at all. You know, it's a it, yeah. get out of jail free card for endless, you know, exploitation and, and pollution. It's a very selfish way of appearing helpful broadly. Yeah. That is not actually helpful to anyone. That no and the, and the really cynical part, like she put it, is that it, there are, there's that, wonder that we do have of exploration and of and of outer space and of of, of the the novel sort of the nature of discovery and you know you're taking advantage of people's uh like deep-seated desire for exploration to to enrich yourself and and to get away with you know vampiric behavior and that's that's evil yeah depictions of space can influence us in other ways too we asked carolyn about the impact of space tourism the commercialization of space, and corporate interests in space. We also asked about the influence of corporate space figureheads like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos on the next generation of potential astronauts and space scientists. Boy, I never, ever thought that we in any way would replace the brave, heroic people like John Glenn or the Gemini astronauts or the Apollo astronauts with people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. I'm almost wanting to say, are you kidding? We're talking about people now who have amassed an obscene amount of wealth, uh, not through what I would regard as legitimate means, in that the wealthy have managed to manipulate the system so that they don't pay their share of taxes, and that's exactly why they've been able to collect so much so much wealth. I don't have to go on and on about the disparities and the inequalities. You know about all this already. They're now driven by power and greed. That's why they feel they can get away making these outrageous comments. Like I, I guess they thought no one would challenge them on this. And it's not brave at all. It's hardly even visionary. They're standing on the shoulders of giants. I think people got so they were so moved by seeing these the astronauts 
orbiting the Earth in the Gemini capsules and and just trying to work out how you get two spacecraft to meet up, which is one of the goals, the main goals of the Gemini program. We didn't even know how to do that in those days. And then the Apollo astronauts going to the moon with far less computer power than you have in your key fob that opens your garage or operates your car and going from the earth to the moon when we didn't even know what kind of environment that was. We didn't know the radiation environment there. We didn't know if the astronauts would survive. These were terrific heroic people. And not only that, they weren't like monkeys just put in a spacecraft. They participated in the scientific investigations and the engineering testing of the the spacecraft that they were going to use, the the Saturn V, the lunar module, and so on. There's no comparison between those people and the Musks and the Bezos and the billionaires. Absolutely no comparison. I can't see people actually being inspired in the same way. We get inspired. We were so moved by watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon because it, it was watching someone of our own kind Doing doing something that was at the absolute limit of human experience, which which was actually stepping on the moon, doing something that for all of human history had been deemed impossible, and here we were on another celestial body. So I I have to ask. I could be deeply wrong about this, but I have to ask if future generations are going to derive the same inspiration from seeing people walk on Mars when we already know what Mars looks like and we already know people have been to other bodies. Carolyn draws a clear distinction between art, media, images, and storytelling that are meant to inspire and engage and those whose goal is ultimately to generate profit. NASA's goal isn't to make money, they're not beholden to shareholders. We can be relatively confident that their work is done in the name of science and exploration. But what companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin are doing is fundamentally different. They may sell us stories and visions of discovery, exploration, wonder, perseverance, but it's ultimately just a ploy. It's a tool used to drum up interest, support, government contracts, and profit. Although I do think that in moments, the NASA, in other historical moments, the NASA motivations have been slightly less idyllic than that. True. Like maybe the Cold War. Yeah. Right. Like we <laughs> don't, this was a military, NASA was a military operation for decades and decades, effectively speaking. I mean, yeah, we, we literally don't have a space program without the Cold. military. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and like JPL started as a contractor building rockets for the, the U.S. military mm-hmm. that eventually morphed into a space program. So you're right. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too kind <laughs> to NASA. But, the, but, the, but yeah. it's, it's good to view both of those, like you're saying, because it's not, that's not to say that everybody that worked for NASA felt that way or you know, only cared about Soviet competition. You right. know, like many, obviously many people that worked for NASA also ha- had that sort of spirit of 
exploration and childlike wonder and existential anxiety that led to want to answer some of the deeper questions. But yeah, it's good to point out those two simultaneously existing dynamics. The yeah. counterbalance to profit in this particular moment. I just don't know if it's always been sure. That, that was right. Well, and yeah, there's right. a reason that NASA is not as well funded now as it was in the 60s. 100%. You know, because when, they're squandering all their money on high dollar voice casting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. When asked why he's so intent on colonizing Mars, Musk said, quote, it's important to have a future that is inspiring and appealing. There have to be reasons that you get up in the morning and you want to live. Like, why do you want to live? What's the point? What inspires you? What do you love about the future? And if the future doesn't include being out there amongst the stars and being a multi-planet species, I find that incredibly depressing. That sounds great, but Look past the flowery language and the specifics are anything but inspiring or appealing. What he's really talking about in his own best case scenario is moving 1 million people, or about 0.01% of Earth's population, to Mars by 2050. That 0.01% will almost certainly not include you or me. He hopes to get the cost down over time, although as far as I can tell has provided no plan for doing so. But Musk has estimated the cost of getting the first 12 astronauts to Mars at 10 billion US dollars per person. 120 billion dollars to get a dozen people to Mars to do what exactly? We've been sending probes to Mars since the 1970s. We've learned a lot. We've seen high quality photos and videos. Is the fact that there are humans on Mars really going to give the average person a reason to get out of bed in the morning? 12 people on Mars doesn't seem like a very high return on your $120 billion inspiring and appealing future investment. Cassini cost just over $3 billion, and it clearly inspired many people. The two Voyager missions combined cost less than $1 billion. NASA's entire 2021 budget is just over $23 billion. Jeff Bezos of Blue Origin offers a slightly more direct explanation of his space travel goals. Quote, the only way that I can see to deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. That's basically it. The billionaire space race has only escalated since we talked to Carolyn, with Jeff Bezos launching himself into space, SpaceX putting a crew of civilians into space, Blue Origin suing NASA over the distribution of contracts to SpaceX, so on and so on. What Bezos, Musk, and other billionaires are doing looks and feels like it's for the greater good. Partially because they've intentionally disguised it that way, and partially because space just sort of instinctually inspires thoughts of exploration and discovery in us. But in reality, what they're doing is actively exploiting people and the planet for their own financial gain, and shifting focus away from our very real problems down here on Earth many of which they've helped to create. So what is exploration and what drives us to it in spite of enormous challenges and dangers? Why do we feel so compelled to branch out across continents, oceans, and cosmic voids at extreme personal risk? I asked Carolyn about the human instinct to branch out, or as Star Trek put it, to quote, explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. 
Why do we devote so many resources, so much time, so much thought and energy to exploration? Having a keen analytical intelligence and having a deep curiosity and the physical capabilities to indulge that curiosity has conveyed to us over our whole evolutionary history has conveyed an evolutionary advantage. And and that's why we have evolved to be the way we are and to want uh, want to explore and want to move into new places. It's led us to covering the earth with our vast numbers. It's led to incredible advances in science and mathematics. And all that has led us to live happier and healthier lives. And that same intelligence drives us to want to dig deeper and understand what the universe is all about and to propel ourselves off our planet to explore what's out there. It just is a knee-jerk reaction. And it all satisfies a deep longing to grasp the significance of our own existence. However, just because we have the drive to go elsewhere doesn't mean it will continue to be feasible forever. And you know, that disclaimer that you see on the brochures of all investment firms or on their website, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. Well, the same applies here. You know, we've been enormously successful as a species for the entirety of our history. We invented science and mathematics, and we've used those inventions to come to know our place in the cosmos. And that is absolutely, positively extraordinary. It's, the, it's really the best thing about our species. But we need to be braced for the possibility that there really may be limitations that we can't surmount and that we will never create or never settle another world in the cosmos that is more suitable to us, more tailor-made for us than is the Earth. And that we, it really could be that we are going to make our very last stand right here, right where life all began. And that means that now we have to give all our strength and our resources to the crises that we're facing. It's an all hands on deck moment. And we need to concentrate not on these fanciful notions that we're going to terraform other planets to save ourselves, but on repairing the damage that we have brought to our environment and the rest of the biosphere and learning how we and all the other creatures and organisms with whom we share the earth can best live sustainably on this island jewel in the solar system that we call our home. Yeah, or and I think, you know, a lot of people would say, like, that those the things that seem like out of reach also you can also find by going, going in also, you mm-hmm. know, the, the sort of like deep, like pe- penetration of the now kind of meditation, mm-hmm. like that, those sorts of things feel like very similar kind of explorations, you know, like I, I can embrace, I can cut if, if it's all unified, I can come to terms and experience what, what the beginning of time and the uh, outer reaches of the universe are 
also by go by going in and experiencing a deeper sense of of now and of of my internal what what am I talking about? This is getting way way out there. <laughs> this is this is leading listing. Uh, Dangerously deep into the heavy drug user part of the audience. And I apologize. <laughs> no, that some of the like determination with art that you're talking about and that like we see both with Steven and to a lesser degree with Harry is like some of what you're answering is you cling to a thing and not just the thing, but your specific idea of the thing and not letting go or giving in or seating is you're answering this like relatively fundamental human question of like how far will you go? What will you do to see this through? And like, that's a lot of what's the core of exploration as well is like, how bad do you want to see the moon? Mm -hmm. (laughs) How bad do you want to get there? Yeah. And I do think some of that is what, you know, hides the impractical bits of the Musk and Bezos plans too. Right. Is that like, you go, Oh, well, none of this was ever practical. We'd never do anything if it were, and it's sort of a veneer that, shields from criticism by playing it like what's at the core of some of that you know commitment to exploration commitment to art mm-hmm. just that none of it's ever practical and if it were practical it wouldn't trigger the same things that make it feel good make it mm-hmm. worthwhile mm-hmm. yeah carolyn described the root of exploration as quote a deep longing to grasp the significance of our own existence and that really is the heart of science better understanding our world and our place in it. But you could say the same thing about art. The processes are obviously different, but we make art to better understand ourselves, each other, and the world around us. She also mentioned that exploration has led to, quote, incredible advances in science and mathematics, which have led us to happier and healthier lives, end quote. We know this is true in many ways, but focusing just on NASA, their missions have provided us with many day-to-day improvements. NASA developed a technology that gave us digital cameras, CAT scans, cochlear implants, LASIK, Bowflex, and memory foam. But this process can run in reverse at times, too. Sometimes art leads to scientific advances. Science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, probably best known for 2001 A Space Odyssey, gave us the idea for geostationary satellites, which are now widely used in a variety of communication, meteorological, and navigation applications. The inventors of the submarine and helicopter credited Jules Verne with providing the inspiration for their inventions. Space exploration might look very different today if it were not for H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Robert H. Goddard, inventor of the liquid-fueled rocket, said after reading War of the Worlds, the concept of interplanetary flight, quote, gripped my imagination tremendously. Jack Parsons, another rocketry pioneer and founding member of JPL, became fascinated with space travel after reading Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon as a child. Martin Cooper, the director of research and development at Motorola, credited the Star Trek communicator as his inspiration for the design of the first mobile phone in the early 1970s. Quote, That was not a fantasy to us. That was an objective. Maybe the worlds of art and science aren't as far apart as we normally think. Maybe they're in conversation with each other. In his book, The Aesthetic Brain, Dr. Anjan Chatterjee, professor of neurology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, writes about the Bengalese finch. 
The Bengalese finch is a songbird not found in nature. They're a domesticated version of the white-backed munia. One of the main differences between the domesticated Bengalese finch and the wild white-backed munia is their song. The Bengalese finch hasn't experienced the pressures of natural selection and adaptation to harsh environments. Their entire history is in human-controlled environments with plenty of food and water, safe from predators. On the other hand, white-backed munias evolved in high-stress situations competing for resources. As a result, the wild white-backed munias sing a small number of simple songs, primarily used in mating. But the domesticated finches have developed a wide range of complex songs, most of which serve no practical purpose. They've also incorporated sounds from their environment into their songs. Chatterjee sees a similar process playing out for humanity and art. As our lives have gotten easier, with fewer predators, easier access to food and water, we've had the luxury of creating more diverse and more complex art. Art was more functional in our early history. We needed to convey information across time and space, so we drew pictures, told stories, and sang songs. It also brought us together socially, which was crucial to our survival. But now, thanks in large part to scientific advances, we have the freedom to be more creative. We have the luxury of dreaming. We no longer have natural predators. Most of us have access to food, water, and shelter. And yet the underlying instinctual need to tell stories, to connect with each other across space and time, has never left us. Pete Doctor, chief creative officer at Pixar and director of Up!, Monsters, Inc. and Inside Out once said, quote, As filmmakers, we're pretty much cavemen sitting around the campfire telling stories. Only we use millions of dollars of technology to do it. By telling stories, we connect with each other. We talk about ourselves, our feelings, and what it is to be human. Or we just make cartoons. Either way, we try and have a good time, and we hope the audience does too. After falling down this rabbit hole for the last few months, I've drifted pretty far from my starting point. What started as a curiosity about a kid's movie has led me to questions about art, exploration, science, and philosophy. I was also starting to wonder why I cared so much about finding this movie. Why did it matter if I could watch some kid's movie from a decade ago? What difference did it make who directed it, which animation studio produced it, or who did the sound design? In any literal sense, it didn't. Finding and watching this movie almost certainly won't change my life or anyone else's. But it felt important at the same time. It was becoming clear to me that what Harry was doing when he set out to make Quantum Quest, what Steven was doing when he made In Saturn's Rings, and what Carolyn was doing when she took pictures of the solar system were all somehow related, that they shared a common ancestor somewhere. And to a lesser extent, I was starting to feel like my process of exploration was somehow related too. Maybe a distant cousin, but related nonetheless. In each case, there was a curiosity, a sense of exploration that guided them to new places. Whether it's tracking down a mostly pointless internet mystery to its absolute end, making a piece of art, or sending a robot to Saturn, it's good to be curious. It's that curiosity that got us here in the first place, and that's hopefully going to guide us towards a better future. Next time on Finding Quantum Quest. We found Quantum Quest. 
the thing that I believe more strongly now than when we started is that that thing deserves to be seen by people. Finding Quantum Quest is written and produced by Spencer Worth Davis. Co-produced by Sam McCullough and Ryan Copperud. Story editing by Sierra DeMulder-Ayers and Katie Roth. Special thanks to Eric Mason. 